everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. So since we last talked, you know, a lot of things have been going on for me. Spring has sprung in Vancouver, which is cool. Um, you know, I found myself moving from being really physically active and running almost every day, kind of falling into this funk. And, you know, I wasn't running as much. I wasn't doing any exercise at home. I started eating really bad. And it always has the exact same thing that happens to me. It's this like weird spiral. You know, I start getting a bit uncomfortable in my own skin. My clothing starts getting a little tighter on me. I start feeling bad about myself. And then I always go back into the like, oh, you know, I'm going to never do this again. I'm going to get back on the bike. I'm going to get back on the, on the road running again. I start making all these proclamations and I rev myself back up and I get going again. But it's this weird cycle where I have to get like really uncomfortable and super bummed and almost like angry at myself before I do it. So that's something I'm really working on is to get a little bit more consistent with my self-care and when I slip to not beat myself up so much. And it was interesting this time because like as I started getting into that kind of like curmudgeonly cycle where I start like really critiquing myself, I was able to really identify it and move past it pretty quickly and then just energize myself. So I don't know if it's because like it's the spring, if you know the days are a little longer, there's more sun out, or if there's an actual change going on. But I'm feeling like, you know, I got this. I'm going to be okay. And the way that I'm getting there is not through negative motivators. So that's what's going on with me. Um, in that vein, uh, the person we're talking to today, John LaCroix, is someone that I think really demonstrates the idea of like, if you're facing challenges, the thing to not do is to beat yourself up. Instead, the thing to do is never give up. And John is someone that I've wanted to have on the show for a while. He is someone who has a really rich creative history. So from publishing magazines that were widely distributed through underground music, he was a show promoter in Boston. He played in this pretty legendary band called Ten Yard Fight. He did all of that stuff. But at the same time, he also built up this incredible career. So today he's the creative director at Walmart and his job is very, very interesting. It's kind of surprising someone coming from the punk and hardcore scene can so gracefully step into this role. Now, of course, in our conversation, maybe it's not as graceful as I position it, but I have to say like getting to know him a little bit through our conversation, but also just watching how his career's developed, it's really seemed to me that this guy has done something miraculous. And to me, he's very much an inspiration. So before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. everybody, welcome back, and if you're new to the show, welcome to One Step Beyond. Today we are with John LaCroix. This is someone that I've been really excited to talk to because 
not only have I been a real big fan of what he's done creatively uh, through music and art, I've also been a huge fan of what he's been doing with his career. Really, truly one of those people who's been able to take all of these things that we learn in this like DIY punk rock community and apply it to building a really, really cool career. And there's a lot of surprises in his story that I'm looking forward to sharing. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, man. My first question is, how does a guy who comes from punk and hardcore and plays in what I consider to be like a legendary band, Tenure Fight, <laughs> Thank you. find himself, so going from Boston, playing in this super cool band out in California and now in this very senior level uh, position in Walmart? How does that happen? Um, I'm a person who is never happy with the level I'm at. Um, in anything. Um, I, I like to take on difficult things and that's where I get my energy and my passion. So I, I really feel like it's kind of been a problem sometimes because I'm impatient and I've spent my career like working, I think double or triple time really. Like that's always been my, my, my way of getting to where I'm at. You know, I figured like I would say no to, to nothing. Any friend calls me, they need a t-shirt design. They need a band logo. They need anything. I'm there. I will say absolute yes. At the same time, I was saying yes to all the corporate stuff. So I was working freelance as a corporate person. Um, I was going, I was working at, Pol I worked at Polaroid in 94. So I'm never happy with where I'm at. Um, not a negative thing. It's more of a positive thing. It's like, mm -hmm. I just, I'm ready for the next challenge. I'm ready to take on more. Um, and part of that is necessity. I grew up ex like really poor. My, my mom had me when she was 15 years old. I wanted things. I mean, I remember like look at watching like a Dokken video and just, I mean, crying deeply, like hurt that I didn't have one of those like majestic things in my hand, you know, a guitar. Yeah. And um, I made a decision and, you know, some of it came from, uh, a little bit of an imposter syndrome, I guess. Like we didn't really get it. We didn't know back then what that meant. Mm -hmm. And of course I was like, I'm talking about when I'm 13 right now or 12. Um, when I sort of decided like, I'm just going to like put all my time into taking photos of my friends skating and, you know, doing these logos and doing a zine, doing all this stuff and working just double time. And when the opportunity came to do, you know, corporate work, I just put the exact same passion into that as I did you know, starting a band or any of that stuff. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. Okay. So nor Northern suburbs of Boston, um, right on the New Hampshire border, uh, in a place called, I was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, and I lived in a place called Methuen where Caven is from. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, a, a lot of kind of interesting stuff happened in the nineties there. It became sort of a tiny little cultural spot. Yeah, yeah. Lots of cool music and art came and comes out of that oh, area yeah. in general. But tell me about growing up, man. So like you mentioned, you know, you, your mom had you young. You grew up with very little. Yeah. So what was that like for you? Um, you know, what's weird is I think the weirdest part of my upbringing is our relationship with materialism. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's good or bad for me now, because like I said, it's like I was driven by these things. I wanted these toys. I wanted guitars and skateboards. And I wanted, you know, I always had that dream of, I think everybody had it, right? 
Someday I'm going to start open a warehouse and there's going to be a ramp and we're going to have shows in the back and we'll sell art in the front and we'll make vegan sandwiches and it'll be incredible. I've always wanted something like that. And I've had, some, had it to some degree. And when I was growing up, we were so poor. And uh, I mean, I was treated like the poor kid, the smelly kid uh, at a young age. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of supervision. I didn't have a lot of... Um, guidance from people who had succeeded in life. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody went to college. My mom worked at a sub shop when we were, we were kids. So necessity, right? Like I just said, I want all these things. Um, my family was very funny. Like we had the, one of the first VCRs. We were poor as dirt, but we had one of the first VCRs. We had Atari when it was like a big deal to have Atari. So when I say like our, our relationship materialism, we were making up for being poor yeah. by acquiring the shiny object of the day. Yeah. So when you talked about a little bit of imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, when do you think that started for you? Uh, forever. For, uh, since, the, since the day I was born. Since I mean, I was born, I, I, you know, I, I hate to be like the ne- super negative punk rock dude, but mm-hmm. I felt like I was not meant to, you know, be. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it was a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was not born of love yeah. by two people. I was not planned out. I was sort of the product of not a very good relationship. Um, and so I felt like an imposter in my own body since the very beginning. You know, I felt, um, you know, when I was 15, 16, I started going to places like North Andover, which is a, a, a richer town. You know, you know North Andover because of like Exeter or Phillips Academy you know, where presidents go to high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would go and travel over there. And, you know, the Converge guys lived there in that area, Piebald, you know, again, a very fruitful area. And I always felt like I was still just the poor, dirty kid. And it just always made me feel like, and and to be honest, I've always felt like I had like a, after puberty, I I look, I guess, maybe intimidating or something. It's always kind of hurt me. Even like an agency, I worked in an agency many years ago and somebody said to me, Oh yeah, like we know just not to mess with you. And I was like, why? Like it, you never even interacted with me. It's like, oh, you just look scary. Like you look like this other scary guy. We we used to have a creative director who had a tattoo on his neck. <laughs> and and I was always be like, hey man, that's like not cool. Like I'm into like emo music. Well, you know, if they saw a ten yard fight show, they probably <laughs> they probably realized <laughs> where I'm like, oh, you know, jumping across people's heads with my guitar and stuff. But um. You know, I always felt kind of hurt by that. So it's like I had this, you know, upbringing that made me feel out of place. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this like look and way about my personality, like a little too loud, um, hyperactive, you know, hyper- ADHD from, from day one. I was, you know, highly tested and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's why I ended up in the hardcore scene, right? I mean, I was a freak. I went to where the freaks hung out. I felt comfortable around the freaks mm-hmm. and, um, you know, back to that, like, sort of like, we're afraid of you. Wow, man. Like what a way to kill collaboration if you're afraid of me. Totally. So, so I've been working you, to just change that, you know, for, for years and years to change that reputation or that, you know, way that I'm judged. Yeah. Perception. Yeah. Perception. Okay. Let me ask you a question then for you was creativity and being involved in creative pursuits. Was that even a choice for you? No, no choice. No, no. It, it right, shows so, me. Yeah. When did you first discover like that power, that release 
of being involved in the creative process? Um, uh, I don't know if my ADHD um, therapy and sort of training um, when I was a very young, if, if any of this, that, any of that affected it, because when I was very young, I was, you know, I would go to school and I got straight A's, right? I knew the material. I, I you know, I got a, you know, a hundred percent on my science test in like second grade, right? I, that's a thing I remember. And my conduct grades were F's like cannot, you know, incorrigible cannot be dealt with. Um, and so about age set, I guess first grade is like age seven, you know, I would go to therapy every day and they said, you know what, let's try this. Maybe John doesn't need to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Like maybe he can be in class and maybe we can give him this little, and I had a box, red box, flip open the red. Anytime I feel like I'm going to mess with a kid next to me or, or talk or, or, or be disruptive or, or like just, you know, for I'm just losing attention, I went into the box. The box was like crayons and pencils and markers and all that stuff. So it was my solace. It was my, uh, my moment of Zen anytime I wanted to. So I leaned into it. They, they encouraged me to lean into it. And I was good at drawing. I used to draw, draw these little clowns. They're ugly. I never got any better than I did at that age, which is uh-huh. funny. So I have a real block with like drawing. I can do it when I try really hard, but otherwise it's difficult. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, they, they encouraged me. And there, then there came a point where I realized like all my, all the toys and all the playing I wanted to do was role play Mm. of me as the boss or me as the business person or, you know, so at like, say age seven or eight, five, six, seven, even before that, it was like, I'm the band leader and we're starting a band and a band is a business. And, you know, I'm also the business person. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then I need to go into my, my little box of tools and build a stage. I, I, I knew it was connected already and I always wanted to do every bit of it. Yeah. yeah but I yeah. didn't know what it meant. You know, I didn't know where it was leading. Yeah. Um, so being a guy who really is just known of you through fanzines and through videos and, yeah. you know, through mutual friends, you always struck me as this being this kind of larger than life guy. Really? And I, yeah. yeah and, and also a guy that kind of had a, a core anxiousness. About Definitely. Him. So that's I, wow. I have, that's an amazing observation from, from afar. Anxiousness is, it's like it, it drives, it's everything for me. Well, you know, so being a guy that like, I mean, I spend all, all of my time in the psychology of people and, and working with the psychology of people, especially in the business world. I also know how that can be a huge creative output, that unease that we carry yep. with ourselves. We can channel that in. So if we're thinking about like your involvement in punk and hardcore and skateboarding and magazines, like where was the moment where you were able to take that and help create a bit of an identity for yourself? Cause you know, you talked about, about being a bit of a feeling, a bit of an imposter syndrome. And we also know that power of like, suddenly you're not just like some random skateboarder. You're like the editor of whatever magazine, or you're the bass player of this band or the guitar player of that band. So at what point did something that you created help create an identity for you? Um, it took a little while. I started a zine very early. I saw a zine, uh, you know, skating. My, my friend had a friend. He had the, he had the Gorilla Biscuits album. Mm -hmm. 
and I heard, we heard, oh, this is this band Gorilla Biscuits. They're like the per and then somebody said to me, oh, they're like um, they're like the Descendants, like in you know, like that song in the uh, in the, in the Santa Cruz video, mm-hmm. Coolidge. Yeah, and th- you know they weren't wrong, I guess. So show me the zine. I got I immediately, you know, wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be, do that. I didn't feel like anybody was going to welcome me to the party. So I did not ask for permission. I just did it. Yeah. I didn't stop to think if I would be cool. Mm-hmm. I did not know that all things you do for, in the beginning kind of stink. And, and, <laughs> and they have to. And, and you, you really, if you, if you have that attitude, you are clueless for like the good first 30% of your project mm-hmm. or more. And um, so I did the, you know, I did photocopied scenes. I, 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 and I, and I kept trying to innovate on it. I kept trying to get money to do it. That's when the CD started to come into play. Once I put the CD sampler in there, things, I I, I realized, oh my God, this scene is actually some kind of a force. Like people want it. What was the name of the zine? Extent. That was Extent. So Mm -hmm. in, I, you know, I did a couple couple zines early, early nineties. Extent comes around 93. It starts off, you know, photocopied. It becomes you know, newsprint at some point. Then I found out you could do two color. Then I found out I could do three color, arms four color, I mean. And then I had this idea. Well, all right, people are buying ads. What if I sell space on the CD as an ad, right? It's worth so much a minute because the CD was, you know, 75 minutes or whatever it was. And at that time, you'd actually had to pay for the time of the CD. So a longer CD would cost you more to, to press. Not anymore. It's very fast now. But um, so I went and sold all these things and I put 10 yard fight on that sampler as well. And that's when I realized within a few weeks that I could create a movement and people would follow. It was crazy to think that anybody would like 10 yard fight at the time because it, the scene did not exist. Boston had, it would ebb and flow as, the greatest scene of all time to a, an absolute shell, like nothing. Mm-hmm. And 10 Year Fight came out around that time. We didn't expect anybody to like it. But when I put it all in the zine and I realized like I had an ecosystem, like I realized like, oh, wow, like I can put it in my zine and the zine goes out, all, goes out everywhere. And then I have all these people who write me and I you know, m- make good relationships with them. And then I book the shows mm-hmm. and then I have great bands to come through the shows and I can play great shows. Cause I'm, do- I'm the one doing it. Like, so, so Stripe comes through, like, guess who gets to open up, mm-hmm. you know? So I realized when I could m- move multiple things together and put it all into like one system, mm-hmm. that's when I realized, wow, I guess, I guess these people like me, I guess, I, I guess I do have influence, all right, but I did so- not feel like I had influence maybe even one second before that. Okay. So you found that thing. That suddenly you're like, oh, like nothing has really mattered up until this point, but now suddenly things matter. Like yeah, now like I when, have value. I have something to add. Yeah. It's like I put out this idea. Everybody thought it was crazy. Like, dude, why are they going to spend money? But I thought, okay, it's, you know, 7,000 bucks to press the CDs. I need to get 7,000 bucks. I went out and did that. And when, when they respond, when, when it's like sort of when people started to respond quickly to things that I would say. I say, hey, I'm going to start a band. And they'd be like, I bet you could make an awesome band. And I'd be like, oh, okay. 
you know, when like I broke up, when Tenure Fight broke up and people wanted me to be in the band, their band, it was just crazy. I just didn't, I never noticed it was, I was building like any kind of clout or anything like that. Yeah. I, I want to dive into this because it's, it's like really important, but I want to take a, a, a step back. Yeah. So you get on this creative journey, you know, up until this point, you'd been this kid that grew up with, with limited means. Yep. Um, you didn't have a lot of role models in your life of people who had gone on to be successful on a larger scale, but it sounds like you were surrounded by like a good family core of people who were actually hardworking. Um, um, yeah, man, this gets complicated. I, I did not grow up with a family who knew how to be a family. Okay. I grew up, um, I grew up in a family of generations and generations of physical abuse, okay. drugs, alcohol, um, you know, it's funny. I, I think about, you know, the, the, my grandfather's generation and what they grew up with and then be an alcoholic after all that. It's, it's like, wow. I mean, you kind of have to wonder what they would have done otherwise yeah, yeah. other than drinking themselves into a, oblivion, but it created generations and generations of abuse in my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, people were very broken. Um, connections were not made with each other. Like there was no love, I don't believe, yeah. uh, between my family. What I did see is like people who were unwilling to ask for help, who are unwilling to admit defeat or, you know, even a problem mm -hmm. for a lot of things. And um, what I saw in my mother was someone who was not going to let this ship go down. You know, she was... She, you know, she worked, I mean, I worked before it was legal to work. I did physical labor at age 12 and 13. Uh, and my mother was the same. She worked two or three jobs. I never saw her until I was in high school. Um, you know, morning, noon, night, like literally three jobs. Like I saw her sleeping on the couch in the middle of the night sometimes. So what I got from them was never, never give up. Right. Um, it's great. It's a great meme or it's a great trope for hardcore. Never give up, never give in. Um, but it was very real. It was very like, you know, we were a step from homelessness often, you know, the, the, the washer or dryer would go out and I wouldn't have clothes for months. Mm. So, um, it was that necessity. I'm never, ever going to let my kid live like that again. So that core, like that core hustle, like I'm going to do hustle. it. I'm not going to give up. I'm like life, it life or death hustle. Okay. So you were brought into the hardcore scene on this wave. Like you yes. were this guy that had that inside yeah. and you were able to take that and your creative side and your ability to like organize and bring people together to create something. So did anyone in your early experiences ever have a bad reaction to this like business mind to that kind of like grind it out. I'll never get up. Did you ever have any like negative reactions from people? Like, or like, why are you such a business person? Or like, who do you think you are? Or like, you know, you're too pushy. You're taking up too much space. Yeah. Yeah. But never in my encouragement and growth phase. Mm -hmm. Only when I made it. Um, before that, the, the feeling I got was sort of like bewilderment from most people, mm. you know? So if you take like any moment in my crazy life, so say age 17, like I'm about to go to college, I'm 
freelancing as a photographer around town. I mean, I'm taking pictures of portraits for cops and, and the baseball, you know, the, and the little league. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm doing a zine. I'm in a band. I'm booking shows. Um, I'm working at the ice cream shop. I'm doing all that stuff at once and I'm still getting decent grades and, and all that kind of stuff. So pe- I got bewilderment from adults. They were like, hey man, whatever. You know, when I, when, talk, when you're talking about businesses and stuff, like I, businesses go back for me to like age, like fir- first grade, absolute first grade. You know, I was the candy salesman, mm-hmm. but I wasn't just like the candy salesman. Like I was like, I, I scoured the town for the cheapest candy and deals and whatever I could do. And I made, I made that profit work. And I, you know, I have, I have the first skateboard on my wall that I ever bought with my own money was that's, that was the original drive. If I don't have a skateboard by the end of the summer, like I'm going to steal one, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was dire like that. So at the beginning, no one, everyone encouraged me, you know, I get, you know, family, they weren't around. They didn't see what happened. They don't know. They don't know what was happening when I was taking the train into Boston. They had no idea what I was doing. They had no idea. I was like, at whole, you know, on a, sitting on a cash box, like 3000 bucks while there was a riot going on. That's age 17. Um, later in life, I have had to fight to take up space mm-hmm. and I feel prejudice about my, um, in my class, I feel classism. Mm. Some, sometimes it's like, well, you know, John, she has an MBA, so, you know, you should really just sit down mm. and I go, well, you know. Yeah, I don't have an MBA, but like I have this like life experience and I, I, I know I know how to do this thing. So I've always had to fight to prove it, show it. Um, and I just developed a style that works with that. I become a pitch man, pitch person. Yeah. All right. So because I, I want to I want to kind of move from one chapter into yeah. another chapter. Yeah. So that's crazy. we've got we get this like incredible coming up. You know, you're a young person dealing with like poverty, challenging family situation living with ADHD, you're, you know, you don't feel easy in yourself, but you find the other like outcasts, Yeah, you know, you find this community of people yep. and there you get to like, you know, kind of hone your craft, you know, you get to make zines, you get to yeah. start bands. And for the audience who's listening, who doesn't know, like Ken Yard Fight arguably were, if not the biggest, one of the biggest punk hardcore bands of, uh, of the late nineties within like the hardcore scene. It's crazy. I grew up in Calgary. I loved and still love 10 year fight. Uh, I consider wrench uh, a good buddy. I really yeah, love awesome. and care about that guy. And I got to tell you, you know, I was a little bummed. I didn't get to see 10 yard fight in the reunion a few years ago, but that's yeah. a whole other story. So 10 yard fight boils up. You take this space and then boom, suddenly 10 yard fights no more. It was like, we're going on a European tour then. Oh, actually yeah. we're breaking up. Yeah. The breakup was weird and it has a lot of factors I haven't even like really discussed in public before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was another Equal Vision Records band and they were on tour in Europe while we were getting ready to leave and they got into something with the booking company. Mm-hmm. Uh, something didn't go right. And the booking company said, we will never book another one of your bands ever again mm-hmm. to, to Steve Reddy. Um, and so our tour got canceled because of that. And what's funny is I worked at Forrester Research at the time. Mm-hmm. So Forrester Research was a legendary company already, and they were still kind of new. And I also was working on my, my stuff. And then while, you're, while you were sleeping, 
magazine, which is this guy, Roger Gassman, who's a very famous art movie guy and art gallery guy. So when it, and, and I, and it's funny, I had a laptop that I was going to bring to Europe and I was going to work on the zine, the magazine for Roger while I was in Europe. Like I thought that was like some kind of a good plan. Mm -hmm. Um, when it got canceled, I felt like I wanted to deal less with drama Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get on with my career. I, re- I, I truly wanted to get on with, with my career. Um, I had opportunities and I felt like, you know, I was never going to be great at this sort of creative director role that I was working towards if I'm spreading my focus in all these ways. And I just had to cut the passion for the band down and out. So the Sad. band breaks up. Well, the band breaks up and I felt like, you know, you went out on a cool record, you know, sounds cool, looks cool, songs are cool. Like, I mean, you kind of arguably helped launch in a, in a way you gave Tim Bomb kind of a, yeah, American a bit more of a platform yeah. so for him to launch American Nightmare. Like inarguably 10 Yard Fight, I think is, I feel like 10 Yard Fight has kind of like regained some of its proper legacy because it seemed it's for funny. a while there, well, it kind of seemed for a while there, like people forgot about 10 Yard Fight, yeah. but it seems like. It, it's the band has come back into the proper space, but I don't want to focus too much on 10 yard fight. Cause from my perspective, all right. So 10 yard fight breaks up. I'm bummed. Then I hear you've moved out to the West coast. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I was like, Whoa, I can't wait to see what band that dude starts out here. This is going to be so awesome. Yep. And then. Whoo, yeah. So I, there was disappear. a story behind that. So that's funny. It happened. I, I was in reach the sky for a little bit mm-hmm. after a 10 yard fight. Uh, they were a crazy, uh, band, as far as ethic is concerned, they would travel to Tennessee on a Thursday and play for five people and drive right back. Um, but playing with, with um, Reach the Sky, I became really close friends with Scott Vogel. Mm-hmm. And I just stay, would spend a lot of time on the phone with him. Scott was in a dead-end job at the time. He lived in like Arizona or something. He had moved out there. He was like a telecommunications person or something. He was like, you know, he was a call center person. Um, and I just every day was like, let's start a band. Let's start a band. Let's start a band every single day. Um, finally got him to move out to California. We got Todd Jones and, uh, God, what's the drummer of terror's name? Of course, Nick, Nick. Nick, Yeah. Nick Jett. Uh, Todd Jones said, Hey, Todd Jones would call me every day. It was crazy. Todd Jones is a funny character. Everybody knows that. Uh, he'd call me every day. Be like, Hey man, I need, you need me in this band. You need me in this band. Super intense. And and then the every, every other conversation would be like, well, actually, I can't do this band because I'm an IT professional. I'm like going to do my career. So like he was doing the same thing, like balancing his career and trying to figure that out. So we started, I, we were going to call it something else, like The Curse. We yeah, started it was ter- The Curse. We started Terror. It was The Curse. Of, yeah. Yeah, we started Terror. And I went to like two practices, three practices. And then just somehow I just lost all passion for it. I just lost all drive to do it. I thought about all kinds of things and I thought I'm not ready to like go back into that world. Okay. So I want to put a pause there and just for the audience who doesn't know about John's story or know about hardcore. So when he says he started terror, terror is without a doubt, one of the, Probably not just one of the biggest bands of an era. They're just straight up one of the biggest hardcore yeah. bands of all time. Yeah. Scott's a legend. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'd say very comfortably saying like a legendary band. So you help launch this thing and then I'm yep. out. 
So let's now talk about your professional career. You can go backwards if you want to talk about it, but let's let's separate out the punk uh, hardcore side of it and just talk about your career here. Because for me, that's actually the more interesting story. Totally. I agree. Um, so, you know, I, I, I basically great, got my skills through working triple time, um, doing all that kind of freelance work. The corporate stuff was always funny. Uh, because it seemed at odds with my punk roots. But, uh, you know, now I get to bring my punk roots into the job mm. where it's like diversity and inclusion. I get to radically include all kinds of groups of people and, and it feels like punk rock to me in that way. You know, bringing everybody in and like everybody's welcome um, to represent this customer base or whatever it is. So I think there's some parallels, but when it got corporate, I, I did have to like learn a new way of being, speaking, um, organizing. You know, it's funny, like hardcore kids and like skateboarders, like they know the video coming next summer, you know, and it's like three summers later. I had to drop <laughs> all that like, oh no, man, like we just need to get it right, bro. We need to get it right. Mm -hmm. um, I dropped all that and I became very, more, very much more pragmatic. Uh, I, I, I learned how to deal with the business people and the business goal, because in the past, my, my goal was based on passion. Yeah. I have a passion for this thing and I think it should look like this or feel like this. And I don't know, but I know my customer, right? And my customer was me at that point. But when I get out into the real big world, my customer is everybody at some point. And so, yeah, I mean, there's some things I took with me. And there's things I had to really, truly drop. Yeah, yeah. So what'd you have to drop? Like, tell me specifically street, what you had to drop. Street talk, you know, uh, aggressive talk, mm -hmm. you know, hyperbolic language um, was like prevalent in the hardcore scene, like exaggeration and blowing things out of proportion and all that stuff. I had to really drop that. That was a bad habit. Mm -hmm. um, I had to learn how to, you know, come to terms with that, my freakness now at a certain point is, is now celebrated here. Mm -hmm. So I, I think about a time where I was, you know, I felt like I had, Oh man, now I've made it. I'm a group creative director. I'm going into Apple to pitch group creative directors at Apple and my ECD executive creative director uh, looks at me and says, Hey man, like roll up sleeves, roll, roll them up. Nobody wants to see a guy in a white shirt. Come on, man. And that's when I realized I could take it and use it as novelty. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and it's, it's been great, you know? But there's also this thing that there's videos of people jumping on each other's heads all, all out there, you know? Yeah, that, oh, that, man. That's very weird. I, and I love that duality uh, in your story. And <laughs> this is, I mean, this is basically why I started the podcast. It's like people are... People are all sorts of things, right? Like uh, professionals are all sorts of things. And they've all, everyone has a, a storied past, whether it's just like kind of straight and narrow line or like, you know, playing yeah. all over the world and yep. doing zines. Yep. I, want to I had no what... idea. Like I had no idea the job I was preparing for. Yeah, I thought okay. I was, a so that, that's actually one, one thing that's an important turning point in my career is when I realize I'm not a good designer mm. and it hurt. And it was, it was like a, a period of time where I felt like, crap, well, maybe I'll just be a CEO. You know, I'd started my own company uh, and, I, and I was focusing so much on the business that I was losing the creative. And I really felt like, man, I'm, maybe, maybe I've, 
outgrown it, or maybe I just, I never met the mark to be a creative director mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not a good designer. But then I realized like leadership is not the job that you did when you were on the team. It's a very, very different job. It's a very different way of thinking. You're not the best of, of the room. In fact, the people that work for you should be the best of the room, not you. Yeah. The way I like to describe it is a leader shouldn't, doesn't necessarily need to be a subject matter expert. They need to be an expert at leading the experts. Yes. hundred percent. Getting those people energized, making them feel like connected, like that they care. All right. But let's, let's, let's hit on something though. So you go from, again, you're in this punk world doing all this stuff. Now you're working in big organizations. Mm -hmm. The idea of passion, because you're like a super passionate guy, and that's something that shines through in everything yeah, you I can't do. Stop. How, well, but how do you go from being passionate about your projects where there's a clear outcome to you versus now you're in some big company where it's like, how do you have passion about it? You don't own the company. It's, it's not your company. You can't steer the company. How yeah. have you maintained that passion and that focus? Chasing danger, right? Like d- chasing risk, mm-hmm. uh, putting yourself out there, doing difficult things, you know, skateboarding, hardcore, jujitsu. It's hard. It's about doing hard, dangerous, difficult things. Mm-hmm. It, it's my adrenaline rush. My yeah. adrenaline rush is getting in front of a room of people who are ready to judge me, and you know they want my idea to be bad sometimes, and and facing that adverse and like winning them over. I mean, it's sort of like um, you know some kind of like cliche movie where like. You know, I'm the, I'm the underdog and at the end, everybody's rooting for me. Like that feeling is hard to, um, it's, it's very addictive. I, I just need it all the time. Yeah. Okay. You know, like I almost want to be their adversary to begin with just so that I can win them completely over at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you were to say like for young people coming up in the punk and hardcore zone, or just young professionals, uh, even. What are some of the things like, you know, you and I come from a, a similar space where it's like we grow up with all of these messages from the punk scene about like how terrible corporate America yeah. is and capitalism's bad. But both you and I find ourselves now working deeply in that world, like yep. deeply, deeply, deeply. So what are some of the things like what are some of the myths you think you could dispel about like corporate culture to uh, young people coming up professionally? You, you can you can get in there and you can actually make a difference. You can actually change things and you can make a difference. It doesn't happen with one person, it happens with many people. So everybody needs to change their attitudes if they feel like, you know, they can't, ch- you know, if there's a company that they love, but they are conflicted, maybe a Nike or something, very cool, but maybe they're conflicted about, you know, the environment and, or something, I don't know. Um, you can get in there and you can learn that craft. And you can, it takes a long, long time. You have to be completely focused. But when you get there, you can make absolute change. Mm-hmm. If I can make changes in the number one retail brand, the biggest company in the world, or biggest you know, retail company in the world, it, and then anybody can do it. You can start small and you can work your way up and you can make changes. Yeah, totally, man. I, I love to hear that. All right, I, I want to ask you a bit of a personal question. So you've mentioned living with uh, ADHD mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I've met many, many really successful people who live with uh, ADHD. Yeah. What have been the gifts of living with ADHD and what have been the uh, barriers that you've had to overcome? Yeah. A lot of like when I talked about earlier, like the imposter syndrome or feeling like I'm the, you know, loud, annoying guy comes from the ADHD. 
whether it's real or, or, or not, like I, I felt like I'm the, the freaky kind of like loud and, you know, crazy guy. Mm-hmm. What that has done for me is like any other challenge is y- your job is to rise above it. Right. And to, to, to put together systems or, or whatever processes in place that make that thing that is your problem into your superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that works for all industries, right? Like, I don't know if an ADHD person could be like a court reporter, mm-hmm. right? You know, like listening to everyone say what they're saying and, and, and doing it. You know, of course, ADHD people can do anything they want, but that's a difficult thing. For me, creativity and the, the job that I'm in, the ADHD works because I am in a meeting seven, eight hours a day at least. While that meeting is happening, I'm getting text messages, slacks, emails, all on different subjects. And when I jump to the next meeting, those, those conversations are ongoing, but I've got to shut down my thought process on meeting number one and rev up the thought process on meeting number two, keep those conversations going. And, you know, one thing that people didn't understand about ADHD in the early days is that with the distraction, there's also a, another side of it, which is hyper focus. Mm-hmm. And so I learned to make hyper focus work for me really well. Hyper focus, it, it's sort of like I cannot, I physically cannot stand up from this desk until I feel like this is done or I've explored every single situation. And it's difficult. Like writing is difficult, but the result for me has been very good because, you know, I don't know, you might sit down if you don't have ADHD, right? You might sit down and write a paragraph. Mm -hmm. I don't sit down and write a paragraph. I write notes. I draw a little bit. I have to think about and visualize it. I walk around, do some, do some pacing. And then I sit down and I I write the first sentence. And then I do that same process again. Sometimes it's arduous, but I'm doing research on the other subject and, and I'm adding to it. And I'm like, I'm laboring over it. And to me, that's where the passion and the drive works together um, with the ADHD to just, (laughs) to make it get done. So I miss no details or I try not to, and I uncover every idea and keep, you know, I I just beat it to hell to try to get that idea to work. And that's what's that. I mean, that's, I, I, sometimes I feel like other people should have this power because it's, it's just so great for me. All right. So tell us about you today professionally. So Mm -hmm. like we've heard about how you came up your Mm -hmm. journey, like these turning points, who are you today as a professional? Like, give us a sense of like what your day-to-day looks like, what you love about your job, like what kind of reach you have. Yeah. So I work at Walmart. I'm a creative director. Um, I work from home now. Um, I run a big team. I actually run three teams. Um, I work on branding of the company. So, you know, a little more than what the logo looks like in all these places and, you know, the the extension of that. Then I work on lots of projects, lots and lots of projects, campaigns, advertising campaigns, partnerships, you know, um, celebrity partnerships and all this kind of cool stuff. Um, you know, what's crazy is that I can make a change like a re- I mean, I'm not talking about these big changes like earlier. I'm like a really small change, like the way the word 
the phrase is, is on the page, on the homepage of the website. And the difference in success and, and failure is millions of dollars a minute sometimes. So like for me, like you said, anxiousness, like I, that's great. I'm playing off of that. It, it gives me the urgency to get it right and to, um, you know, to put all that attention on it. Uh, my job as a creative director is very different than I think maybe some people think it is. It's not that glamorous, right? Like, I mean, I do photo shoots and video shoots and, you know, I review a ton of work. So, uh, you know, a meeting is basically like, okay, John's here. They put it on screen and we just, we flip through it and I go, yes, no, make it yellow, make it blue, change this, change that. Is this okay? You know, ask a ton of questions, be super annoying. And then repeat over and over again by like, just like dozens and dozens of projects. There's also like incredible fires to put out just like incredible chaos. Um, so the job's like a 24 hour job. I never stopped thinking about it. And, um, it's not that creative. Like, I, I don't know. Like, do people think creative directors like sit there and just play with art all day? I think they kind of do. You know, I, I get that stigma sometimes. Like, oh man, like John, just let it go. Like stop, stop being such a perfectionist, stop being such an artist. But what I do changes the trajectory of sales by millions and millions and millions. You know, I, I've also got to work on some of the sensitive things. Like I work on, I'm, I'm helping to market COVID vaccines, right? We, we are giving out COVID vaccines and I'm working on that marketing and it feels like life and death to me. It feels extremely important. Mm. Um, so as we're getting towards the end of our conversation here, you know, uh, you have just shared so much incredible thinking about how someone can like take the great stuff they've got going on, but also mm -hmm. their deficits and make them work. And one of the things I keep hearing about you is like never giving up, like never. always figuring it out, like make, make the challenges into strengths, like all of those things. So for professionals anywhere at any stage of their career if we're going to talk about like you know failure is not an option never ever give up what is some advice that you can give to someone who's really on that verge of giving up professionally oh, man it's like i want to hold their hand and you know sit down with them and really like get into it um if you're on the verge of giving up um first of all there's always a better situation or a different situation mm. um I have found that having anxiety about making a move to a different job is so wrong. It's so, it's so useless because I've taken a jump up every single time. I've always felt like, oh, I can never leave this place. This is, this is me. And, uh, but I'm not getting the right attention or I'm not getting the resources I need. I'm being set up to fail or something like that. You got to keep moving. You got to get on. Um, you got to be careful with this advice, but don't stay in your lane, right? Like, um, a lot of people, and I get it with, with you know, if you're, you're in finance, right? Like, I'm not going to question you about the math, right? Uh, but when you're in creative, you know, you, the accountant will have an opinion on the color or, or the look and feel. And I think that for a lot of people, that is a super positive thing, right? It makes them feel a part of something else, a part of something different, get their mind off of the math or whatever it is they do. So don't stay in your lane. Like, broaden your horizons, go out there and look for new things to do. Uh, I have found people who are 
utter failures in the job that they do. Mm-hmm. All right. They're on my team and they're just, they're just no good at it. And it's, and it's sad. I don't give up on those people. I, I wonder what it is adjacent to this skill set that they can do. And honestly, I've seen it happen, turn it around completely. You know, a person going from, you know, we call, I don't know if you, you have this term, but performance improvement plan, mm-hmm. right? Means, hey, like you're not doing so great. You need to figure it out. You got about like two weeks or three weeks to figure this out. So here's all the list of your problems. I do not like those things. Right. Like I like this, the sentiment of them, but I don't like how mean spirited they get. What I like is being like, Hey man, have you ever written instead of design? Like have you ever written, you write anything and all of a sudden you'll hear, Oh, actually, yeah, no, I do have a blog and you know, I have all these things. So it's like, get out of your lane, check out other things, see what you can do. When I realized I was not a great designer, it was like I said, crushing. I was like, oh my God, where am I going to go from here? How could I be a creative director? And then I realized a creative director was like we said. So that's my advice. Don't feel, you know, discontent, right? It's like use discontent Mm -hmm. to create a new situation for yourself or a new challenge that you can um, give it a shot. I love that, man. All right. So last question for you before we uh, head off into our last words. Um, So most punk hardcore people have a box of demo tapes that have been following mm. them around ever since they were young. Mm. Uh, and those demos, nobody knows about them except for them and their friends. What are three... Oh my God, that's an amazing question. What are three unknown demos from any period that you feel should get a little love? Oh my God. All right, so I have the Ashes demo. Mm. Ashes demo was groundbreaking. Female-fronted ha- hardcore singer. Singing like not like a hardcore vocalist. That demo is incredible. It's never leaving me, my, uh, my box. I don't have a tape player. Mm-hmm. I do have the first Converge demo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to use it as blackmail someday <laughs> for that. Um, and you know, I don't think you should listen to it. It's not like, it's not, it shouldn't get attention. It, it's, it, because Converge is such a um, force and they are such a, inv- they're such a, like an invention. Or, or, or birthing of a, of a beast. Mm. And that beast was not pretty in the beginning. <laughs> uh, All right, so we got Ashes. That's yeah. one that's like Yeah, perfect. you got to listen. Gotta, that demo's incredible. Okay. Um, I loved the... No one... I don't know if anybody knows this band, but they. I think they made a seven inch later. Um, Encounter was a New Jersey band. Okay. Yeah, and they were yeah. like emo core. Mm-hmm. And I love that early emo core. Mm-hmm. So that's another demo I, I, I'm sure I have. Like the dude sent it to me and um, I really cherished it. So okay. yeah, those, those, right. there's three demos. Yeah. All right. Converge is in there as well. All right. So we <laughs> yeah, got those three funny, demos. Yeah, that's kind of funny, man. I never, you know, I have a, I've always had a strange relationship with those guys, but that was a funny, funny demo. Well, huge shout out to Kurt. Love you, man. All yeah. right. So last question, you know, man, like you've got a, a huge story and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Any last words that you want to share with us as we sign off? Oh man, I don't know. I'm not the, I, I really don't feel like I can give advice for everybody. My like what worked for me is not going to work for you I, or may, or my, but it probably won't. Um, I took the hard road to my career, meaning like, you know, if I knew I was going to be a creative director, I would have just said, okay, I'm on the creative director path. 
designer, senior designer, art director, senior art director, associate, you know, like I was going to just make that move uh, and work at, you know, work at an agency, work brand side, pick one, go. Mm -hmm. And you could be rich and you can, you can do really well. I did not take that route. I stopped. I spend time on my hobbies, my life. Um, took me a while to get, you know, I, I had, there have been periods where I did not, but living my life and, you know, having the guitar here and having, I have a gym back there and, and like combining creativity challenge. Uh, and then this like life thing where it's like it, the clock is ticking, right? Like I'm 45, I got 20 more years, right? I better make this mean something. But at the same time, I'm going to, like I said, get out of my lane, try different things. And that's, what, that's how I ended up where I am. If that works for you, um, enjoy it and, and don't let the anxiety get you. <laughs> All right, my man. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, everybody, you. I will see you in the outro. And Dave, drop the beat. That was an awesome conversation. Uh, thanks so much, John, for joining us and for sharing your story. You know, that idea of never giving up, you know, it just seems so like trite. Like, oh, I'll never give up. But actually, I mean, you gotta not give up. For some of us, that means looking at a situation and getting out of it, doing something else. But that's actually not giving up. That's about refocusing, moving our energy. And John had moments of that in his life. And for other situations, it's about pushing through it. So if you got a wall ahead of you, figuring out how to go around it, go over it or go through it. That idea though of never giving up, if we move past these kind of like, you know, trite ideas of what that could mean and past the memes that we put on Instagram, and we actually think what that means for us individually, it is about tapping into that deeper part of yourself, that part of yourself that has that endless energy to keep going till you get over the next horizon. So thank you so much, John, for sharing your story, sharing your wisdom. And for anyone out there, if you are feeling like, you know, I don't know if I can make it through this, now is the time to look in the mirror and find that extra push that's going to get you there. So as we're wrapping up, I want to remind everyone that we're produced by Patrick McKechnie, edited by Dave Larson, and our design is done by Tammy Levy. We've got a great group of people behind this podcast and I am forever appreciative of all their hard work. So with that, I'm going to sign off and I'll see you all next time on One Step Beyond. One Step One Step